Today's scripture comes from the Gospel of Matthew, the fourth chapter, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So a couple of days ago, I had a dream, and here was the dream. I was pacing around in my office frantically. I mean, hyperventilating, sweating, just completely in a panic. And I was saying over and over again, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? By the way, the person in the room with me was Rob Gervin. And he was calming me down and getting me in order. And I was panicked because, for some reason, this dream didn't make any sense. I had lost my sermon. And I kept saying to Rob, they've already started the singing. i got to get in there. I don't have any sermon. I don't have my notes. And I'm, I'm in an absolute panic. You know what's interesting about that story? That's not me. I mean, I get up tight sometimes about things. But generally speaking, I don't get in a panic. What's interesting about that story is it's already happened before, right? I got up one time, and I opened my Bible to pull out my sermon notes, and it was last week's sermon. So I just went ahead and preached what I had prepared for this week, even though I didn't have any notes. What are you going to do, right? You got to do what you got to do. That's kind of the way I roll, and I probably would be a better pastor and a better leader if I was more anxious. I'm just not that anxious. Although some doctor this morning actually suggested I might have high blood pressure. So I guess in, on top of not being anxious, I might be lacking in self-awareness. I don't know. Um, the point of that story, it really has nothing to do with my sermon. No, just a little bit. It's this. I hear about people, and I know people that I love very dearly, who really are anxious. They get worked up about stuff. They get anxiety-stricken over things I just don't understand. To me, it's not that big a deal. And i got to be honest, I have a hard time understanding it or sympathizing. Because if a person is in a panic about something that I think is not a big deal, I just can't get inside their skin. I don't get it, right? It seems okay to me. 
So when you think about God, have you ever asked yourself the question, surely you have, does God really understand me? I mean, after all, God is God. He's got all knowledge. God is God. He's got all powerful. Who could he be afraid of? What could make him anxious? Why in the world would God be like me? And how could God understand me? Of course, we know the answer to that question in the Christian tradition. That is that God became human in Jesus Christ. And in the humanity of Jesus Christ, God walked through life like we walk through life. There's some sense, I don't get it, in which God and Jesus Christ was anxious, even though he had all knowledge. He was overwhelmed with fear, even though he was the most powerful being on the earth. He was absolutely panic-stricken about things. He actually suffered depression, maybe. He may have suffered loneliness. We know he suffered in his body, and we know he died. And that's all very, very human. Which leads us to believe, yes, God understands. But I've left just one thing out. If you told me everything I just told you about God and why he understands, and you left out the idea of temptation, I would say he doesn't really understand. But in this passage... We find out that God in the person of Jesus Christ even understands that. Satan tempts him to turn a stone into bread in one temptation. He tempts him to jump off the pinnacle of the temple and angels would bear him up in another temptation. And in the final temptation, he says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world, which is what you really desire. If you just fall down and worship me, that's a third temptation. And you look at those temptations and you think to yourself, well, those are kind of strange. I've never been tempted that way. That was like a God temptation, right? Not mine. But when you look deeply at the temptations themselves and the life of Christ, what you begin to realize is that these temptations And in the life of Jesus, we find temptations that are representative, right? These temptations represent something. They're not identical with every one of yours, but they represent something. First thing they represent is the temptations that are about to reoccur for Jesus, right? In this episode, you see Jesus encountering huge temptations, but what you realize when you consider the rest of his life is that the temptations came right back around to him. On any number of occasions, he was tempted to take another route. He was tempted to let the crowds acclaim him as king and to lead them into battle, but he knew it wasn't God's way, just like the temptation in the wilderness. As a matter of fact, there was a temptation that Jesus encountered that was very, very severe. When, in fact, he got to the end of it all and he said, God, there's got to be another way. Can't we just 
forego this thing called the crucifixion. I'd like to be able to bypass it. Give me another way. That struggle was a struggle of temptation in the very heart of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So these temptations not only happened in the wilderness, they predicted what was going to happen for Jesus. The beginning of his ministry, more temptations around the corner. Um, this week I, I read um, something, I'm preparing for something else, I, I read uh, a book again by Daniel Taylor and uh, ran across a quote, I love this quote, <laughs> he says, one of the great problems with great worship and other encounters with God is that after you enjoy the experience, you don't immediately die. Instead, you got to go to the parking lot. Is that great or what? I mean, maybe most of you don't think it's as funny as I do. But look, I'm here on Sunday morning with you in worship, and I am passionate about what I'm saying, and I believe every word that I'm saying. I'm listening to the songs of grace all around me, and I am up here, man. There's no higher point to get than up there. And then, like you, i got to go to the parking lot. It's all over. Monday's around the corner. So Jesus is in the midst of tremendous temptation. And at the end of it all, you know what happens? Angels literally come and minister to him. They lift him up. They heal him. Talk about an experience with God. Talk about complete euphoria. And then he goes to the parking lot. Then God says, okay, it's time for three years of ministry. We're going to do this all over again. So the temptations were reflective or representative of future temptations, right? These temptations were also temptations that represent our temptations. They weren't just about Jesus. They were reflective of our temptations. That's why in the uh, epistle to the Hebrews, the writer puts it this way. We have a high priest who understands our temptation in every way because he was tempted just as we were, yet without sin. Now, what that doesn't mean, of course, is that every temptation that we face was an identical temptation that Jesus faced. Right? Jesus didn't face temptations related to advanced technology. There were none. Right? But in essence, the temptation that we face is what Jesus faced at some fundamental level. <coughs> Pardon me. My son is uh, doing a graduate degree right now, and his thesis project is an interesting study. It's a study about social media addictions. So he's interviewing people in England and other places who have investigated social media addiction. But as part of this project, he has gone on a fast from social media. And he wants to experience what it's really like to walk away from it. I mean, really, are you completely unplugged? Have you ever been in the last five years? The only thing he can do is basically check his email because he has to to keep up his schoolwork. And that way he can communicate with us. And I think he's going to keep calling us, right? Yeah, okay. I think that's okay. But every other form of social media he doesn't do. He's trying to understand the depth of the addiction of social media, right? So he's trying to enter into it. 
Jesus didn't enter into social media addiction, but he understood temptation deeply enough to understand the notion of addiction. So Jesus' temptation represented future temptations he would encounter. They represented our temptations. And Jesus' temptations represent real human struggle. Now again, let me hearken back to what I said a little bit earlier. On occasion, when you think of Jesus encountering real human struggle, you may have this question. How is it true that Jesus could really have struggled like me when he knew completely and perfectly the will of God? When he knew the right answers? When he knew the good at a deep fundamental level? When he had the understanding of God? How could he really be tempted if he understood it that deeply? Who in their right mind would turn away from a relationship with God if you fully understood the depth of his love and the depth of the evil that was against you? Who would do that? Who could even be tempted to do it? It's at that point that um, I struggle sometimes, and I don't have exactly an answer, but I have something that has been helpful to me. And perhaps it may be helpful to you. It's actually a question. Are your habits that are destructive in your life the lack of knowledge of what is good? The things that are deeply destructive about you, do you not know that they're deeply destructive? The things that are leading you astray, do you not know that it's not the will of God? The things that are destroying your relationships, the habits that are deeply entrenched in you, you have infallible knowledge concerning the reality that they're habits that are destructive, don't you? I do. And so with that infallible knowledge, what do you do? You fail. What do you do? You wrestle with temptation. Infallible knowledge that Jesus had, it does not seem to me, is any block to temptation. It only means that with infallible knowledge, he still faced the intensity of a desire to walk away from God. That's hard to wrap your mind around, but I think it's true. So the temptations, it seems to me, were representative of other things, but here's the great news. The temptations were redemptive. When's the last time you thought of temptation as being redemptive in your life? Well, I'm not really talking about your life apart from Christ. The temptations are redemptive because Jesus walked through them and struggled with the same intensity that we struggle with and then did not sin. It was Jesus Christ in the person of that fully God, fully man individual who faced temptations and walked with God. That, that's a historical episode, right? That is a wonderful example. But if we leave it there, we've lost something tremendously important. 
Jesus didn't just have victory over temptations. Jesus' victory over temptation is our victory. His victory over sin and death resulted in the resurrection, not just for him, but for us. His victory, the perfect incarnate Son of God, His victory has been transferred to us. The one who knew no sin became sin for us, took it all on even though it wasn't His, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Mind-blowing concept. The one who knew no sin assumed mine so that I could become the righteousness of God. That's why the victory is there. That's why the temptation is actually redemptive. He's our example of how to face it. He's our high priest who not only did sympathize, but is in it with us and sympathizes. Most importantly, he conquered it all on our behalf You know what that means? It means this, my friends. Our failure is inevitably repetitive. You failed last week, right? Bad news. You're going to fail again. It is necessarily repetitive, but it's episodic. It happens, and it does not define our reality because of Jesus Christ. It might be repetitive, but it is not final. Sin and death do not win, not because of us, but because of Jesus. That's remarkable news. So the final flurry I have for you relates to insights that are achieved through temptation. And I think there's some sense in which temptations are a blessing for us. The first insight we receive through temptation is this. Sometimes temptation is really just a matter of timing. Did you notice that in the life of Jesus? Jesus is in the wilderness and the Satan, the tempter, says to him, why don't you turn this stone into bread? Why? Because Jesus has been on a 40-day fast and the man is hungry. No kidding. Why don't you convert something that doesn't have any nutrition in it to something that can feed your body? And Jesus said no. However, on another occasion, when almost no one had food, he took five loaves and two little fish And multiplied it to feed 5,000 people. Why? Because on that occasion, it was the will of God. It was a sign concerning his messianic kingdom. It was important and God wished that he do it. It was on the occasion in the wilderness where the exact same thing is mentioned by Satan. But he knows full well he must endure the temptation, stay with his fasting because that's the will of God. So sometimes, quite frankly, friends, Temptation is all about timing. What you're tempted with is not necessarily an evil at all. Not in the typical sense. It's the tempter trying to tempt you to make another decision at exactly the wrong time. 
and for the wrong reasons. Another thing that we learn from temptation is that the Word of God is powerful, like a sword against temptation. Now, here's what we sometimes think, that the Word of God is powerful like a sword against temptation. So if I memorize enough Scripture, every time I have a temptation, I can just shout out Scripture and Satan will run and flee like he's got nothing. You know, that's happened to me before, but a lot of times it didn't. And the reason it didn't is because God's Word is not some sort of magic wand. That we could just say, I'm really tired of this temptation. Go away now. I'm going to quote a Bible passage. That's not what the Word of God is in this context. Right? The Word of God in this context is Jesus quoting back to Satan what the real meaning of the Word is. Jesus is quoting back to Satan. Wait a minute. You got this completely wrong. The truth of that passage says this. The point of using the Word of God in temptation is not as a magic wand. It's entering into the truth. When I enter into the Word of God, I enter into truth. And if I allow that truth to transform and to govern my heart, then perhaps I can walk the proper way. Or to put it another way, when you enter into the Word of Truth... You enter the real world. I had a number, uh, well, I don't know how long ago it was, at least more than a year ago. I took a retreat um, that was uh, approved by the Board of Elders just for restoration and um, so I could preach better for you guys, you know, that kind of stuff. And they said, yeah, it's a good idea. You're, you're looking pretty pathetic. You need to get out of here. <laughs> You need to recharge or we're going to fire you, so go away. So as I, I did, and I, and I went to St. Meinrad, um, a monastery down in southern Indiana. Some of you may have been there. I've been there more than once. And on uh, this particular occasion, as I've always done when I've been there, I uh, consulted with a priest. Uh, don't get wigged out, okay? I'm a Protestant pastor. He's a Roman Catholic priest. And I went to him and talked about my spiritual life. And I sat in his office, and uh, uh, he'll never hear the sermon, so he won't correct me if I'm slightly wrong. His name's Father Vincent. And Father Vincent, he must be 115 years old. I mean, this man has been around forever. He always wears the black cassock, you know, and he's just a stereotypical priest. And I just like, wow, this guy's something. And I was kind of a little bit awestruck, you know, it's like, um, like you are. I'm sitting in the office talking to him, and, and somewhere along the way, I don't remember how it came out. He just said to me, he said, Bob, you know, pride is an illusion and humility is reality. And I thought to myself, well, the old man just got his grammar wrong. What he meant was pride is an illusion. But humility can be a reality. And I thought, what, what, what is he? And then I realized what he meant. He really meant what he said. He said, when you are exalted in your own estimation of yourself, when you rise to this high level of pride, you become the center of your own universe. 
You become God above God. You begin to question God. You begin to think you have all the answers. You've placed yourself on a pedestal called pride. And that is an illusion. You know why, Bob? Because there's a God out there who knows everything that you will never know. And he knows everything about your internal condition. And he's spoken to you through his word and through the church and people you love concerning what you ought to do. Come down off your pedestal, Bob. That's an illusion. You're not high above anything. And humility, he says, is reality. The reality is when I humble myself before God, when I'm on my knees in the presence of my Savior, then and only then is reality in clear focus. Because that is reality. I, I've used that phrase with myself many times over. I think that's what it means. To allow the Word of God to be an obstacle to temptation. The third thing that I, I see is insight uh, concerning temptation in this passage is we realize in the life of Jesus, and we know from our own life, that um, we can live without it, whatever it is we're tempted to. Jesus is tempted by bread, and he's 40 days in, and he's fast, and he feels like he's going to die. And in the moment of temptation, it seems like there's no way to live if you can't give in to it, right? Not true. You can live without it. The fourth thing is temptation is always a twisting of something that is good. It doesn't stand out as a, many times, a necessary evil. I love uh, C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters. Uh, wonderful fiction about a senior devil counseling a junior devil about how to take believers away from God through temptation. And on one occasion, the senior devil says to the junior devil, here's, here's what I want you to understand. He says, never forget that when you're dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in some sense, on the enemy's ground. Again, this is the devil, senior devil, talking to the junior devil, and the enemy's ground is God's ground. When you deal with the pleasure, he says, you're on God's ground, the enemy's ground. I know, says the devil, that we've won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it's his invention, not ours. He has made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. In other words, temptation is the twisting of a good. God created everything and called it good. We take it and turn it inward and twist it to our own self-centered means. That's what sin really is. The twisting of the reality that God has given us. So I've got just a few words of exhortation concerning 
the God who understands, the one and only from the Father, Jesus Christ. Things we learn from his example of temptation. First, temptation is a learning opportunity. Don't pretend like there's not something for you to learn there. There is. There's something to learn about yourself, and there's something to learn about God. So see it that way. Number two, this too will pass. Whatever it is, it's going to pass. You can live without it. The temptation which seems so severe, hang in there. The third thing, trust God's word. Remind yourself of the truth in the midst of the temptation. Let me put it another way. Trust God's word more than you trust yourself. That's hard to do. But that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to trust God's word more than we trust ourselves, more than we trust our instincts, more than we trust our passions. We're supposed to trust God's word. Remember, in the dark, that's temptation. Remember in the dark what was clear in the light. When you're in the light of God's word, Things frequently seem very clear. Don't forget it in the dark. Fourth, Christ understands and has defeated sin. It might kick your butt tomorrow, but he's defeated it on your behalf. Get up and keep following. That's what believers do. You get up and keep following, not because you want to be a better person, You get up and keep following because Jesus Christ has already defeated temptation and sin on your behalf and you're walking with him so that you can inherit eternal life. That's why you get up and follow. He's already crushed sin. Claim it, get up and follow. And the final thing is this, pursue what is good. That is to say, in every temptation, there is something good that has been twisted. So think about it. Identify the good. And instead of using a whack-a-mole perspective on sin and temptation, you remember that old game when you were a little kid? Whacking those moles and they just keep popping up. Instead of using that approach to temptation, when you identify what is good in the pleasure, whatever it is that is tempting you, pursue the good passionately and leave the twisted nature of it behind. Ah, easier said than done, right? But it's discipleship. It's what we're called to do. So let's make the commitment and follow Christ by faith. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you, ironically, for temptation. Because when we walk through our trials, when we are tested by you, we realize that there's something to be learned concerning ourselves concerning our world and concerning you. So we pray that in the midst of those trials and testings, you will teach us. You will give us the grace to continue to walk with you, especially give us the grace to continue to walk with you after we've fallen. Because it's then sometimes, Lord, that we seem completely overwhelmed. 
and hopeless. And we think nothing can change. But there's some sense, Lord, in which has already changed. You've redeemed us. You've conquered sin. So help us to live in the light of that grace. And we'll thank you for the help that you give us. In Christ's name, amen.